Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I don't know, maybe we should have had more Kafka-esque music to open the show, but I'm not even sure what that would be. Um, We're going to talk about Franz Kafka today, but uh, I wanted to say that you shouldn't be intimidated by that if you don't have a deep familiarity with his work. Everybody feels like they know something about Kafka, right? People just sling the name around all the time anyway. But you shouldn't be intimidated. We're going to explain lots of things to you uh, that will help you uh, understand who he was. Uh, In our second and third segments, uh, we'll talk first to uh, an artist who has created a graphic novel. Uh, based on 14 of Kafka's stories. That one is actually called Kafka-esque. I guess it's not a graphic novel. It's a graphic collection of stories. Uh, And towards the end, we'll really kind of explore that adjective, Kafka-esque, and whether it's appropriately applied or not. But right now, we want to begin with a story that actually stretches right up almost to the doorstep of the present. Uh, Perhaps ironically, um, Kafka's work became the subject of, of all things, a trial. Uh, And we need to explain to you the nature of that trial. But to do that, we're going to have to lay some groundwork here. The trial itself is a pretty Kafka-esque thing. Uh, Joining us right now is uh, Benjamin Ballant, library fellow at the Van Leer Institute in Jerusalem. He's the author of, most recently, Kafka's Last Trial, The Case of a Literary Legacy. His next book, co-authored with Marav Mack, is Jerusalem, City of the Book. That's due out in May. Uh, He's joining us by Skype. Welcome to the show. Thanks. So I think before we get to the trial, we have to just sort of sketch out a little bit about these. We have to take a little trip into the past and sketch out these two figures. One of them is the well-known name, Franz Kafka. Uh, The other one, though, is the other half of this really unusual Prague bromance. uh, And his name is Max Brod. So tell us, first of all, a little bit about the friendship between these two men. In a way, it was a friendship between opposites. I mean, in a sense, <clears throat> Kafka, as sort of inward-looking as he was, met his match in Max Brod. They met in university. Max Brod was outgoing. He um, was responsible for uh, essentially promoting Kafka during his lifetime, championing him. The first ever book review ever written about Kafka was by Max Brod himself. A very outgoing personality who was also um, much more acclaimed author in his day than Kafka ever was. Max Brod ended up publishing something like 80 books. He had the opposite problem of Kafka. Kafka sort of was a perfectionist and uh, Max Brod was, <laughs> if he erred at all, it was on the side of being very prolific. Right. I think you described one of his 650-page books as a brambly. Um, so, um, so yeah, there's this incredible uh, contrast that, that Kafka has published almost nothing, I think a total of maybe 450 pages, something like that, by the time that mm-hmm. he dies. Uh, but, uh, but Broad has pr- published a lot of work, and he's this huge Kafka enthusiast. He's not only Kafka's best buddy, but he's, he's a big believer in a writer that essentially nobody else knows about. Um, So that brings us to Kafka's rather unusual request at the time of his death. 
So basically, Max Broad returns from the funeral from Kafka died of tuberculosis just short of his 41st birthday. Max Broad returns from the funeral in Prague and goes to Kafka's apartment and finds there thousands of pages of unfinished novels and stories and diaries and notebooks. And among the rest of, of this mess, he also finds two notes addressed to him. And both say essentially the same thing. They say, Dear Max, it's my last dying wish that you burn all of my manuscripts unread. And this is sort of the defining moment of Max Broad's life. Um, he had to choose uh, between his loyalty to his closest friend and his loyalty to literary posterity. Right. And this is, uh, across the decades, something that's really been debated. I find myself, I, I want to know what you think, but I find myself most persuaded by the idea that you know, Kafka already knew that Broad thought, Broad had said many times, your work needs to be read more, you should, you know, everybody needs to see this stuff, you're a great writer, you're terrific. So it seems like an odd choice uh, to have decided to entrust to a man who'd already declared allegiance to the exact opposite outcome, an odd choice by Kafka to say, oh, you know, you're the guy who's going to burn all my stuff. I, I sort of read this as one element of Kafka's brilliance, that he chose the man least likely to carry out his last wishes. <laughs> and I think he, he probably had some premonition of uh, what Broad would do, which was precisely the opposite of um, Kafka's request. And that is Broad not only saved the uh, this great uh, treasure trove, really, but dedicated the rest of his life to editing it, publishing it, making himself into the greatest posthumous editor of the 20th century, giving us the Kafka that we have today. This is all This is all really um, our debt to Broad. Zadie Smith has a nice phrase. She says, to this day, we have no choice but to read Kafka broadly. That is through <laughs> Broad's eyes, through his editing. And this was the great project of, of Max Broad's life. Yeah, I want to come back to that uh, in just a second, but I, let's stay with the biographical part for just a second. So there's there are many differences between these two men. It may have been the key to their bromance, but um, one of them is that although you know our image of Kafka is of this rather gaunt kind of handsome looking guy and Broad really wasn't very much either one of those things. Um, Kafka was a little bit unlucky in love or ambivalent about women, his relationships with women, whereas Broad was, as they say, reliable with the ladies, right? He was kind of a ladies man. Yes, very much so. <clears throat> and that's one of the ways that um, Broad really tried to draw Kafka out of himself um, Kafka confided in Broad all of his, uh, let's say, rocky relationships with women. He was twice engaged to the same woman. He never married, unlike Max Broad, who, who did. Um, and there's another sense in which Broad tried to, let's say, sway Kafka. Uh, and that is that uh, Max Broad was, and this is, will become relevant later in our story, but Max Broad was sort of front and center of the Zionist circles of Prague. Um, especially in the 19-teens and 1920s, and was always trying to sort of recruit Kafka to the cause. Of course, Kafka ref sort of refused to be drawn out, refused to belong. And in my interpretation, there's some link between these two, um, let's say, reluctances. <clears throat> that is, Kafka, you might say, had a problem with... Um, uh, or an ethic of non-arrival. In other words, he never saw himself as arriving neither in the uh, sense of domestic you know, harmony nor in the sense of arriving to the promised land, which is something that 
Max Broad ultimately did. Right. So Max Broad arrives in several different ways. And I mean, the reason that I bring up the ladies is not out of sheer prurience, although I'm not above that, uh, <laughs> but because it's significant, because one of the relationships, perhaps, I guess maybe give me the last significant relationship that Max Broad has is with a woman who is his secretary, who is married uh, to apparently a very accommodating man. So uh, tell yes. us about Esther. <clears throat> Well, uh, to go back one step, I mean, uh, the Max Broad had to rescue uh, these manuscripts, not just from Kafka himself, but then several years later from the Nazi occupation of Prague. And Max Broad, um, before he meets Esther, he rescues these papers in a single suitcase uh, on the last train that was permitted to uh, leave the uh, to cross the Czech-Polish border. And ultimately, although he tried to come to the United States several times, ultimately the only place that would accept him was then British Mandatory Palestine, where Max Broad arrives in 1939. And then he meets this um, uh, lifelong, very close friend, intimate friend and secretary, Esther Hoffe, um, who essentially helps him in this lifelong work of publishing the rest of Kafka's masterpieces. Right. And so I, I, and before we get even to that, uh, I think maybe it is time to say one more thing, the thing that you were kind of getting at, I think, about Max Broad, which is that, you know, a few of these manuscripts get published pretty quickly, but the world doesn't fall down on its knees before Franz Kafka at that point. There really needs to be a Kafkaology invented. If he's going to be the St. Paul to, to Kafka's Jesus, I guess that's a pretty tortured comparison, but I mean, he really, he has to invent some, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, um, some of the, the mytha, mytha of Kafka, some of the I don't know, the the legend, the, the he has to make him a little bit more of an idol or an icon. Absolutely. Max Brod is the mythmaker of Kafka. In fact, he was the first biographer of Kafka. He published a biography of Kafka as early as 1937, which sort of set the tone for everyone else. Um, so he has his hand not as, not just in publishing Kafka, but in in uh, as you as you say quite rightly in in making the Kafka legend uh, as it as it is. And um, you know he was criticized for that. He was criticized for removing certain material from Kafka's diaries. I mean, after all, I should say too that he he made an ethical choice not just to publish the fiction uh, that Kafka left unfinished, but also to to publish all of Kafka's more personal and intimate material. So the reason we have Kafka's diaries today. The reason we have Kafka's letter to his father, uh, his correspondence, much of his correspondence, his love letters, uh, this is all the work also of uh, Max Broad. And, and I mean, up to and including kind of editing and finishing certain things. Sure. <clears throat> um, so uh, eventually Broad dies and it turns out that this woman, Esther Hoffa, is now in possession of, I don't know, how much of the stuff that we're talking about does Esther wind up with? Yeah, well, um, so I should say that Kafka and, and Max Broad had one thing in common, which is that both were childless. So uh, Max Broad is now in Tel Aviv. He's working with Esther Hoffe, and he, in the 1960s, writes a will. In this will, uh, which becomes the centerpiece of the later trial, he says two things. He says, on the one hand, I give you, Esther Hoffe, everything, all of my estate, including all of my Kafka manuscripts worth untold millions, um, in part because he couldn't pay her. He didn't have a lot of money and he couldn't pay her for all her years of work for him. And on the other hand, he says something else, which is that I wish that before you, Esther Hoffe, before you die, that you arrange for the, the deposit of all of this in a proper archive. 
such as, and he lists a few, the first one in his list is the National Library in Jerusalem. Um, so when Max Brod dies in 1968, Esther Hoffe, who had never met Kafka, inherits everything. Yeah, and so, and everything is a lot. Um, this eventually will get us kind of one generation later uh, to the trial. But before that happens, she actually does, because I guess she doesn't really have a lot of money. Max Brod didn't pay her a lot of money. She auctions off a, a thing or two, right? Right. So she, you have to imagine that, that these manuscripts now are, are in an apartment on Spinoza Street in Tel Aviv uh, <clears throat> that is shared. Esther shares it with her daughter, Eva, who will come into our story later, with uh, thousands of pages of Kafka's manuscripts and about a dozen cats. Mm -hmm. It's a very unlikely setting. Um, and as you say, uh, after Max Brod died in 1968, she did something that she never dared to do during his lifetime, and that is she starts to sell things off piecemeal. So the the uh, most prominent example is that in 1988, she goes to Sotheby's in London and she puts up the uh, Kafka's original manuscript of his novel, The Trial, for auction. And it becomes the highest selling uh, modern manuscript ever sold. It went for about two million dollars. And it goes to where? Well, that's exactly the thing. She was roundly criticized at the time because um, scholars said, well, look, I mean, it could be that if you put something up for auction, anyone can buy it. This manuscript, which is uh, priceless, could end up in some, you know, private safe somewhere never to be seen again. In the event, it was bought by a, the world class literature archive of Germany in a town called Marbach, Germany. And they added it to their collection of Kafka manuscripts. It was sort of their crown jewel. Uh, and they ultimately were the purchasers of that manuscript. And ever since, um, they've really been, the Marbach archive has really been interested in adding to its Kafka collection. Right. And uh, so the, the, a lot of the rest of the story is this protracted conversation about to whom does Franz Kafka belong? To whom does his work belong? Where does it belong? And in Germany, although obviously uh, in lots of ways, Germany seems like a, a betrayal and an inappropriate place for the work of a Jewish writer uh, to, to land. On the other hand, Germany has a long obsession with Kafka, probably a greater obsession than is shared by the rest of the world, right? Exactly. And the first and most obvious uh, reason for that is that Kafka wrote in German and he wrote in a very precise and pure German. Kafka uh, didn't consider himself German. I mean, after all, he was living in Prague. Uh, I write in the book that he was sort of, I see him as a sort of triple minority or triply displaced in the sense that um, the, the Czechoslovakia was at the time a minority within the greater Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, the German speakers of Czechoslovakia were a minority within that country, and the Jews uh, were a, a triple minority within the minority within the minority. <laughs> so um, this is another sense in which this issue of belonging comes to the fore and Kafka's refusal of belonging. But purely for the linguistic sense, because, of, because he wrote in German, for Marbach and for the Germans, he belongs firmly in the canon of German modernist literature. Right. And you go around Germany and there's a Kafka Strasse uh, in, in a lot of towns, right? They name streets after him and stuff like that. Absolutely. So, 
you know, maybe uh, you could make an argument for them uh, for it to be in the National Museum in, in Israel. Maybe you could make an argument for this uh, archival center in Germany. Uh, I think everybody would agree that this work needs to be where uh, people can look at it, scholars can study it. And that for a long, long, long time is exactly not where it is. I mean, except for these things that are sold off piecemeal. So where's the, where does the bulk of the work stay? The bulk of the work is split into three. It's um, in this apartment on Spinoza Street that belongs to the Hoffe family. It's in the bank vaults in Switzerland and Zurich where Max Brod deposited it uh, before he uh, gave it in his will to Esther Hoffe. And it's in a bank vault in Tel Aviv. Um, so it's sort, of, it's sort of spread out. And as you say, it's completely inaccessible uh, to researchers and to scholars for all those decades, from the death of Max Barda in 1968 until basically the present. So um, uh, eventually this story does devolve from uh, Esther down to her, initially to her two daughters, Ruth and Eva. So what, was, what were their attitudes towards this inheritance? Well, uh, Esther Hoffett died at the age of 100 in 2007 without fulfilling that second condition of Max Brod's will, without depositing it into any archive. She kept all these things in the locations that I just mentioned. And um, <clears throat> just at the very last moment, uh, the State of Israel, acting through the National Library, which sort of functions here the way the Library of Congress does in the U.S., <laughs> stepped in at the last moment and filed an objection to the probate of her will and said basically to the daughters, Eva and Ruth, the ones you just mentioned, no, 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 this is not your property. You don't have the right to inherit this. This belongs uh, to the state of Israel, to the National Library in Jerusalem, as significant cultural heritage belonging to the Jewish people. At that point is really when the trial uh, began, the trial that culminated uh, in 2016 in the Israeli Supreme Court. Um, and that trial really had these three uh, points of, um, of the triangle of contesting interests. On the one hand, you have the National Library of Israel, which said Kafka's material belongs to us. It's, it's a national uh, property, cultural heritage, shouldn't belong in the, in the hands of an individual, not least an individual who has kept it under lock and key. You had um, the private interests represented by Eva Hoffe, who saw this as a family affair. Max Broad was, a, was really a father figure to her and her sister who helped to raise them and who simply wanted to inherit um, her, mother's estate, her mother's estate. And then lastly, the uh, German literary archive in Marbach, sort of the equivalent of the National Library in Jerusalem, stepped in to weigh in on the side of Eva Hoffe and to say, listen, you, ha you and your mother have been negotiating to sell all the rest of this to us. We are going to weigh in on your side to say, first, you have the right to sell this material to whomever you choose. And second, we're going to counter the Israeli claim and say, no, actually, Kafka, belongs more properly to German culture than to uh, the culture of a state that didn't exist when he died. Right. So, um, and, and there's so much here, but um, we should say that uh, at a certain point, one of the sisters dies, Ruth dies, and I think her lawyer at the time said that the protracted, drawn-out uh, stress of the trial probably contributed to her death. And so now it's down to Eva. Um, and, and I don't know, is it a little bit you can sketch out for us about Eva? She seems like a, like a Kafka character or maybe a Max Broad character. Yeah, you know, I mean, she was portrayed in, in uh, the press <clears throat> uh, when the press on this trial became international as a sort of greedy, eccentric cat lady. And I spent m many hours with her 
Um, and I, I found her quite the opposite. I, I find, found her to be quite a sympathetic character. She saw herself almost as a character in a Kafka novel in the sense that she was an individual who saw herself as facing these two Goliaths in the sense of these two state actors, right? Um, and she felt at times quite helpless, quite despairing. Um, and as I say, she really, at, at one point she even told me, she, she said to me, you know, Kafka has been like a curse to me. And I said, why is that? And she said, it's because all the Kafka material has been mixed up with all the Max Broad estate that, that has generated all this interest. Um, and all these claims on the on behalf of Germany and Israel. And she said, I would willingly part with the Kafka manuscripts as valuable as they are in monetary terms if I were simply allowed to inherit Max Broad's estate and to promote Max Broad's memory. Well, the, and, and there was also, um, I think it, uh, she was not living a, a wealthy person's life by any means. And there was other money that she that was in that she was eligible to inherit. But that was all backed up or tied up until the Kafka exactly. stuff could be re- resolved. She was going to be in penury if she just let go of all the Kafka stuff. Uh, she would have come into, I think, some pretty significant money. But, you know, that's, yeah. you know, in many of Kafka's characters, uh, they are victims of, uh, yes, these Leviathan organizations, but often they contribute to it somehow, too. Often they are at least partly the authors of their own problems. And is there a sense in which she's a Kafka character that way, that rather than working out some kind of compromise, she sort of, you know, stayed the course on, on this vision that she had? Yeah, certainly. And and I think no, none of the three sides is blameless in that sense. I mean, each acted, I think, in a quite heavy handed way. Um, and, uh, as I say, both she and her mother could have acted quite differently. They could have, uh, opened the, um, archives to researchers and to scholars. I mean, some of this stuff, I spoke to Kafka biographers in Germany who are just dying to see some of this stuff for the light that it would shed. For example, it has not just, um, Kafka's diaries, but Max Broad's diaries that would shed light on, on, on their, uh, long and, and complex relationship. So... Yeah, I mean, each of the sides could have behaved, I think, in a bit more of a flexible way. But then, you know, then you wouldn't have had this sort of comic, tragic adventure story (laughs) that Kafka himself could have almost authored, you know. And we should say that, you know, each of these sides, they have agendas. So Germany uh, is looking to refurbish its reputation. It's done uh, healthy, I think, self-examination about the past. But it doesn't want to be a country where a Jewish writer can't be honored. It wants to be a country where a great Jewish writer who wrote in German can be honored. Uh, Israel, and I think Max Broad probably would would have thought so, too. Israel sees this uh, as a, an opportunity to showcase a uh, a great, great, significant uh, Jewish writer, uh, and whose whose best friend, you know, brought this work to the future site of Israel, uh, and and so I mean, everybody's got kind of an agenda. I, does anybody have the agenda of? What you just described, like biography, let the scholars, the biographers, everybody should just be able to read this stuff. Let's not worry too much about where it goes. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the strange thing about the trial is that, um, first of all, a lot of the material, the, the the manuscripts had already been published, right? So we have the trial, we have the original manuscript sitting in this apartment, right? But of course, the trial itself has already been published. 
So, um, the, and both Marbach and the National Library in Jerusalem had pledged to digitize the material uh, should they get it. So the question is really uh, one of why of the aura, let's say, of that, that persists even in this age of, of the digital, of the aura of the original manuscript. Why are, are people willing to spend millions on a Kafka manuscript or tens of thousands on a single Kafka postcard? Uh, why are they willing, why are two states willing to invest so many years of, uh, in this legal battle if it weren't not just for the matter of national prestige, but if it weren't for, for the aura somehow that still persists um, that a manuscript, an original manuscript still has, even if that manuscript, uh, you know, can't really add to our uh, knowledge of a, of a novel like, like uh, The Trial, which has been endlessly poured over. Right. And I, I think, you know, the other uh, I don't know if it's an irony or not, but I mean, you know, we talked about what Max Broad had done to invent Kafkaology. He, he invented what ultimately be, ultimately became this incredible. You couldn't even call it a cottage industry. It's too big to fit in a cottage. I mean, the scholarship about of Kafka is, you know, exists in orders of magnitude greater than Kafka's extant work. But it's also coffee mugs and tote bags and gift shops. And I mean, except for Edvard Munch, I can't think of anybody else who's early 20th century anxiety has been so completely monetized and turned mm. into merchandise, right? Even Andy Warhol did a portrait of Kafka. Right. So, I, I don't know. Will, we should see how this all got re resolved. Ultimately, uh, how did the trial end? Well, so, I should say that I, that, uh, I, I was sitting in the Supreme Court in the summer of 2016 listening to this, and I was, before I get to the spoiler, I should, <laughs> and I uh, was astonished at how the trial really moved on two registers or, or two levels of language, right? So on the one hand, there's an interpretation of Max Broad's will, and it's a legalistic argument. On the other hand, just boiling beneath the surface were these heavily ideological claims. So, so I'm st I'm sitting there in the Supreme Court, and I hear, you know, that the Israeli lawyers are saying things like, "Well, Germany is the last place that Kafka's legacy should be." Um, all three of Kafka's beloved sisters were uh, killed in the in the Holocaust. Um, you can't say that you're particular. You Germans are particularly good custodians of Kafka's legacy. Um, and on the other hand, you had the German lawyers uh, say to the Israeli side, well, look, you know, Kafka was not a Zionist. Uh, he never stepped foot in this country. Uh, what's his connection, right, to the modern state of Israel? So before we get to the, to the actual verdict, the verdict, the significance of the verdict was not just who owns the material uh, manuscripts, but uh, and not just even what kind of a writer Kafka is, but also who has the right to claim, um, uh, let's say, a Jewish writer living in a diaspora. In other words, I had the sense, even sitting there that day in the trial, that each of these countries was attempting to nationalize this writer who refused in his lifetime to be claimed by either. In other words, you know, the, the the trial really shed light on Germany's claim on a writer who is, whose family was decimated by the Holocaust and its own, by the way, its own sort of post-war attempts to overcome its shameful past. But it also reawakened this debate here in Israel about the ambivalence of Kafka towards the Jewish state and in turn Israel's ambivalence towards Kafka and towards German language culture, right? In the end, and that's just a long and, and windy maybe way of getting back to your question, in the end, the Supreme Court of Israel decided in favor of the National Library that in the end, Eva Hoffa had to give everything up without any recompense whatsoever. 
afterwards I spoke to her and she was of course despairing and devastated um, and she had lost everything um, and as we speak these manuscripts it's still very uh, very much a current story because these manuscripts are still making their way to the National Library so uh, there's so many, many, many other details uh, to be consumed. And it's, this is just fascinating storytelling. Uh, Benjamin Balance, uh, Kafka's Last Trial, the case of a literary legacy. I sort of, I think I agree ultimately, and the, the way that you put it helps me even think this way, that, you know, the, it's a mistake to locate Kafka anywhere. His stories become so universal. I think there's somebody towards the end of your book who says they should just shoot it up to the moon or Mars or someplace like that and, um, you know, let it be away from anywhere because, well, I, I had this fear. Yeah, one one once one person suggested, yeah, it should be sort of out of this earth, right? Yeah. So that nobody can make a claim. But I had this great fear, and not only me, but also Eva Hoffe's friends towards the end of her life. By the way, she died in August mm-hmm. in the shadow of this of this loss. Um, but uh, several of us had the fear that she would take drastic action, having lost the verdict at the Supreme Court, that she would somehow set fire to the manuscripts in her apartment, thereby, first of all, saying, making a declaration that if I can't have it, no one will. And then in a funny kind of way, you know, closing the circle and fulfilling Kafka's will from 1924. Fortunately, she did not do that. All right. So for more, you got to read the book, Kafka's Last Trial, The Case of a Literary Legacy by Benjamin Ballant. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, This is all fascinating stuff. All right, let's meet some new Kafka friends uh, after this break. uh, And maybe even some friends here from WNPR will be appearing in Kafka-esque guise. Came to his desk, deprived of Kafka. Where towns and mines, Roman nets, a Kafka. His self-esteem is statuesque. All right, we're back with more Kafka. Uh, now joining us is Peter Cooper, a freelance illustrator who has written and illustrated Mad Magazine's Spy vs. Spy. Isn't Jonathan McNichol a huge Spy vs. Spy fan? I think he is, yeah, since 1997. Not that I'm not. I read it as a kid. Uh, he's produced many books and adapted Kafka's The Metamorphosis into comics. Uh, his most recent graphic novel is Kafka-esque. And this is 14 uh, Kafka stories uh, that are rendered uh, in, in comic style. Uh, and Peter Cooper, is joining us right now. Hi. Hey, how are you doing, Colin? Good. So, um, you know, when I, look, when I read these stories the way that you've done them and look at the art that you've done, it's, it just seems like such an natu- incredibly natural fit uh, to have the, the right kind of, of graphic artist take this material. But how did you, how did you know that that could work? Or what made you want to do it? When I first came up upon Kafka, I uh, was the metamorphosis, and I thought of him as just being very dark and um, not, I didn't see any humor in it. And a friend of mine who was a big fan of Kafka would read him aloud over beers and listening to it and finding myself laughing, not just because of the beers, I real, it struck me that comics would be a really great drawing, doing them, his writing in comics would work rather perfectly. And back in 1988, I tried the first one, which was a fratricide, which is included in this collection. And it just fell into place very quickly. And subsequently, whenever I had the opportunity to do a short story, I would I would pull out a Kafka and try it. And they 
they uh, suggested ideas for storytelling that I didn't have myself uh, for my own writing. And it gave me this sort of freedom to play around with the storytelling and have his text act as an anchor. Um, and I think, you know, I, I was so glad to read in the introduction that you were influenced by some of the early newspaper comics. Newspaper comics used to look, be so great, so weird and dreamlike, uh, and, and the art was so inspired. Windsor McKay, uh, who created Dream of the Rare Bit Fiend, and I, I think, didn't, didn't McKay uh, uh, create Little Nemo, too? Yeah, yeah. that was that was more more kid-friendly version. Uh, Dream of the Rare Bit Fiend, which is, I think he started in, in like, 1900 three or four, um, which, you know, is a contemporary of Kafka's. And I, I always wondered whether Kafka might have seen newspapers from the United States and that that was in any way, I don't know if it would be an influence, but even just that he found the kinship that came from the zeitgeist of that time period. So we've taken a few of the um, stories that you've adapted and uh, had some of our people uh, voice them. So uh, I'm going to play one of them and have you react to it. Uh, This uh, is uh, literally a cat and mouse story called A Little Fable. A Little Fable. Alas, every passing day, the world becomes narrower, said the mouse. At first it was so wide that I was frightened and kept running and running. I was relieved when at last I saw walls in the distance to the right and left. But these long walls have narrowed so quickly that I am already in the last room, and there stands the trap that I must run into. You only have to change your direction, said the cat, and ate him up. All right, that's read by Lydia Brown. I'm Lydia Brown's manager. You want her to read stuff, you have to go through me. Um, So, uh, Peter, uh, help us out a little bit. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the story and, and how you handled it. Well, that sounds like the Democrats' response to uh, Trump's address last night. <laughs> well, there's walls. It, there, well, there's walls, and there's the you know a hungry cat waiting and saying all you have to do is you know turn around basically. Uh, the uh, I looked at these. I had a short story collection, and it was the ones that were translated in the fifties and forties and fifties. And there's this wonderful stilted quality to that that tone. Also, I just love. The, the voice that you get from those, which I discovered in the process of retranslating and, and reading a lot of other translations, is not, you know, strictly, like all translations, they go through a process and each translator comes up with a slightly different answer. So, so the, the way, the, the voice of Kafka, we are really hearing, unless you know German, you're really hearing it through somebody else's voice. I prefer the one from the 50s to more modern translations. But, and I tried to, to hew to that general tone. Um, but stories like that, when I read them, they, they just ins- they inspired a lot of references to current events, but at the same time, that kind of eternal quality. And I'm certainly seeing lots and lots of, of associations between Kafka and what's going on in the world today and in the United States, and maybe in particular, but that's my, you know, being here and all, um, and it's going on around the world that these bureaucracies and these circumstances where the world is getting smaller and that I could show that in this form that um, with, you know, having, having it be anthropomorphic where there's animals doing it also makes, has a universality to it, which I love when Kafka does use animals. 
Right. I have this whole theory that Paul Manafort would be a great uh, Kafka story. But um, but yeah, there's a way in which, um, you know, here's this guy who really for most of his life didn't venture far out of Prague, only occasionally, you know, I mean, mo- spent most of his life in one location, wrote in German. Um, and and it, this stuff, it just makes sense to a magical realist in Argentina or Brazil. It would make sense, I think, almost anywhere in the world. There's, there's a real transferability uh, of all this stuff. And I think the way that you've handled it, too, uh, calls a lot of attention to this. Let's hear just a little tiny uh, segment. Uh, this is voiced by uh, Katie Tularski. Uh, from the trees. The trees. For we are like tree trunks in the snow. They appear to rest lightly, and a little prod should get them rolling. No, it can't be done, for they are firmly attached to the ground. But look, that too is only appearance. Um, you explain what it was uh, that you did with the trees. The trees called you to uh, another contemporary problem. Um, living in New York City, uh, the constant uh, issue of homelessness, it's, it's always in our face, just every walk to and fro. And I, when I read that, that very short, like one paragraph uh, story, I, what I saw was homelessness and that, that it was, uh, and it was another way I, I was really deeply enjoying a sense of having Kafka kind of whisper in my ear. I know that was just my own, my own doing, but it, it, it just, it felt like these things were suggested. Like I wasn't trying to overlay a, a, you know, a checklist of social uh, woes. I just simply read the story and that's what popped into my head. And that I think I could probably read any number of these stories and anybody who, who picks up Kafka and reads them will find their own interpretations. And that's, the, that's really the beauty of Kafka is how much any, anybody who reads him will come away from it with a, a different vision. I like that idea of Kafka whispering in your ear um, because I think that kind of has to happen, right? You have to do a Vulcan mind melt of some kind if you're going to do this. Indeed. And he's probably flying around the universe at this very moment, so All right. laughing at all of this. So. So let's talk about one more. Let's talk about in the penal colony. I mean, I don't know. I can just say that name and already people are going to start thinking about, I mean, we're doing this particular show on the Wednesday after President Trump's wall speech. Uh, You don't have to stretch very far, I think, to make this connection. Let's hear uh, the voices of Lily Tyson, the producer for Next, and Jonathan McPants, producer uh, of our show. It was early morning and the streets were clean and empty as I headed to the train station. When I compared the church clock with my watch, I discovered it was much later than I thought, and I needed to hurry. The shock of this discovery caused me to doubt my way. I didn't really have a feel for the city just yet. Fortunately, I spotted a nearby policeman. I ran up to him and breathlessly asked for directions. You want directions? From me? Yes, since I don't know the way myself. Give it up. Give it up. He said, then turned away, like a man who wants to be alone with his laughter. So that's from Give It Up. But, I mean, these there are a bunch of stories, several of the stories that involve people interacting with very large, imposing, uh, not particularly friendly-looking authority figures, Peter Cooper. Yes. Yeah, that, that um, Give It Up was one that particularly uh, spoke to the anxiety that I was feeling at the time and that it, the way, it also fell out as the drawing of that story where I was doing storytelling that I just 
hadn't thought about before. And uh, the, the, the text just inspired it so completely. And it, it, it was part of the, this kinship I have that I found with his writing and with a number of writers that, that they just, the way they speak to you um, kind of adds another layer to your, what your own knowledge and, and in this case, through my drawings, I found all sorts of storytelling modes that uh, I could go kind of crazy with it. And uh, I, I do have an enthusiasm for comics that is um, Kafkaesque <laughs> and that I am constantly trying to share this with people. And having done this for many years, it was especially through the years where people didn't think that graphic novels were had a place in bookstores or libraries. And so I felt like I was always trying to demonstrate what could be done with a comic strip. And Kafka was a, was a beautiful way to combine the literary world and the comics world that would could show somebody who um, thought that they weren't neither fans of comics nor thought that they could, you know, re- read a comic in, in, a, in an unusual way and follow it. And I, I'd like to think that I managed to do both of those things. I think you certainly did. Uh, and we have to stop now because we've got one more segment to go here. But great talking to you, Peter Cooper, uh, creator of Kafka-esque 14 Stories, a graphic novelized collection of Kafka. We're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with one more conversation. Folks. All right. I've got my uh, Kafka tote bag and I've got my Kafka instant pot cookbook, my Kafka foam, big foam finger, my Kafka beer koozie. I think I'm ready to start listening to one of his albums. No, no, no. Album? I didn't understand. All right. Today's uh, I wrote that joke for Kion Wolf, but then I forgot to give it to her. So today's show is produced by Betsy Kay uh, and by Kion Wolf. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by uh, Anthony Perkins. Uh, and tomorrow on the show, we'll be talking about changes in the English language. Also about the year in swearing, swearing in 2018. I guess who swore most notably. Uh, all right. So uh, finally here on the show, you know, this as we got ready to do this show, uh, we just talk, kept talking about the fact that people just sling that word around all the time, Kafka-esque. Uh, and so what does it actually mean? Well, joining us, I hope I'm about to say her name correctly, Charlotte Allen. Am I saying your name right? Is that how you say it? Uh, Charlotte Aline. Aline, okay. That's it's a hard better. one to pronounce. Oh, sorry. no, I think I can manage it. Charlotte Aline, writer, playwright, uh, actor, and artist. She wrote, The meaning of Kafkaesque is about more than just pointless bureaucracy and giant insect sex for bustle. Well, the title kind of says it all, but uh, do you want to elaborate on that? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Um, I think a lot of people use the word Kafkaesque as a synonym for frustrating or bureaucratic. I'm on a certain level. I mean, you're not wrong if you're uh, filling out some convoluted paperwork and you think this is a Kafkaesque process to be stuck in, or if you're uploading your resume to one of those websites that then makes you type out all of your work experience all over again once you've uploaded the PDF. That's always annoying to me. Um, But I think a lot of people miss some of the nuances of the phrase that in Kafka's writing, it's not just that people are frustrated with bureaucracy, it's that they're using their own circular logic to fight circular logic. Like when Gregor Gregor Sampso wakes up as a giant cockroach, his first thought isn't like, 
oh, gosh, what does this mean? Why have I turned into a giant cockroach? His first thought is, oh, I'm going to have to get to work on time. I'm going to be late for work. He's still thinking within this system. He's still acting like a cog in the machine. I think it's a really great point, and it's kind of typical of us, too, that we use Kafka as to talk about them, what they are doing to us, mm-hmm. those people, they. Uh, and and really, in a lot of Kafka, it's not that we make our own hells, but we, we contribute somehow, that it would be impossible to so fully imprison us if we didn't do some of the jailing ourselves. Yeah, I think one of my favorite of his short stories, uh, Poseidon, where he's talking about the sea god Poseidon is um, unable to explore his own oceans or appreciate any of the wonder of the sea because he's stuck at his desk doing paperwork. But the reason he gives for being stuck at his desk doing paperwork is that he doesn't trust anyone else with the work. He thinks everyone else is beneath him. So um, I think that's kind of unusual in a Kafka story that the protagonist is also the person in power and not sort of the soul-crushed businessman who's uh, working for someone. But, like, even the boss himself hates that he's stuck at his desk and yet won't let up on the work he's assigning himself. Um, well, yeah, there's, the, a, there's so much of people trapping themselves in these systems in to, writing. It's totally the case of Poseidon. He, he has built his own his own prison and he won't deal with it. So that, but you know, go back to what you initially said, though. Mm-hmm. You know, we throw the word around to describe situations we're in. I do feel as though there are situations today I feel like if that if Kafka were alive today, he'd be very interested in social media. And in particular, I think he might be interested in those terms of use things that we click accept mm-hmm. to, right? That, <laughs> I don't know. Do you, have, do you have thoughts about these things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and yeah, again, I don't think it's wrong to use the word Kafka-esque to describe just any situation that reminds you of the sort of absurd bureaucracy of Kafka. But yeah, certainly like the iTunes agreement or any of these things where they they make you scroll to the bottom to be able to click OK, but no one has ever read it. And there could be almost any kind of information in there. Um, Yeah, I, I think a lot of our a lot of our social media use, especially whenever I see people on social media complaining about the evils of social media, it it just feels very like we're all trapped in a Franz Kafka novel. Um, it, it feels very circular. Like we're, we hate this uh, system that forces us to, you know, feel judged by other people's photos and feel constantly outraged by the 24 news cycle. And yet the only way we have of registering our frustration is to post a status about how upset we are. Right. And, and also there's this Mephistophelian bargain that we never acknowledge. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Facebook, Facebook is this tremendous tool which is given to us, quote, for free, unquote. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really not. Uh, and if we thought about it for 10 seconds, we would realize that nobody's going to build something that's that pervasive and that good and that all-encompassing and that useful in terms of making connections and archiving your life and communicating with other people. Nobody's going to hand you that for nothing. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead. Riff on that if you want. Oh, yeah. I, I think um, it, certainly uh, any kind of and what's scary is how many, how often I in my daily life, if I see something pop up that says, like, we've updated our privacy agreement, I always just click OK. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. And I'm someone who will, like, rant to my friends about, like, how I'm worried that social media is, like, stealing all our information and selling it to advertisers. And that's just not right. But, like, 
Absolutely. I would never take that far enough to then actually read any of the agreements that I'm just saying yes to. Um, yeah. So, I mean, they, you know, I could be like Joseph K. They could come to my door any day now and <laughs> say that I've sold my soul in a Facebook agreement. And I, I wouldn't have a leg to stand on defending myself because who knows? Maybe I did. Right. So, um, yeah, uh, Franz Kafka, we're allowed today. Definitely. He would write something called the privacy agreement. So I guess the last thing I'd like to ask you about uh, Charlotte Aline (laughs) is, you know, the other thing about Kafka, he died at the age of 41. He was a very obscure person at that time. We don't have the chance to ask him questions about, well, how much of this was intended to be comic? How much of this was intended to Mm be uh, uh, tragic and, and, and alienating? And maybe that's one of the reasons we struggle a little bit with the overall meaning of his legacy. Yeah, I I think it's really interesting how funny his writing is. Um, I feel feel this way about a lot of writers that most of us encounter for the first time in high school. We're almost afraid of the comedy of it because we're taught that, like, you know, serious writing is tragic primarily or dramatic, that comedy isn't as serious. But I I think his work is funny on a personal level. Um, A a lot of it is funny in that... um, the situation is so absurd, but also funny in that we're watching these characters sort of play into their own suffering to continue to try to find uh, ways within the system to free themselves from the system. And it's just never going to work. Like in the trial, no matter uh, who he appeals to, all the people with more power, still no one seems to know who's in charge or who's making these rules. Everyone just follows them. Um, Yeah, I think... I think you have to recognize some level of absurdity in there. Although, of course, there's no telling what uh, Kafka himself would have wanted us to take away from his stories. Right. I think if you don't think there's something funny about being turned into a giant cockroach, (laughs) you're probably not trying hard enough. Uh, Charlotte Aline, writer, playwright, actor, artist. Uh, She wrote The Meeting of Kafka. Ask us about more than just pointless bureaucracy and giant insects for bustle. Thanks for being with us, Charlotte. Thank you so much. And we'll be back tomorrow with a show about the English language, assuming that today is today and tomorrow is tomorrow, which, given the fact that you might be listening on a podcast three years from now and we have robot overlords, is guesswork on my part.